This is the Educated Home Buyer. Everything you need to know to buy right, borrow smart, and build wealth through real estate ownership. Welcome, everybody. It is Wednesday night, and this is the Educated Home Buyer Live. If you are watching us on the Educated Home Buyer YouTube channel, that will make perfect sense to you. If you are on the much larger Jeb Smith YouTube channel, you may be saying, hey, who is this guy? That is absolutely not Jeb Smith. Uh, Jeb is tending to, to some important uh, family business tonight, wasn't able to join us. So I'm going to be wearing both hats, covering the real estate side for Jeb and the mortgage and number side uh, in general. So as always, we're going to start with the slides. Jeb's provided all of his slides that he normally shares with you. I will go through those and then we'll go through the fun, boring number stuff after that. Um, we got a long way to go and a short time to get there in the immortal words of Jerry Reed. Um, for all of you young folks, you'll say, who is Jerry Reed and what in the world are you talking about? But go back in time, watch from Smokey and the Bandit, and it will all make perfect sense to you. So with that, let's jump into the charts here. Slide number one, as we always talk about, is what is inventory doing year over year? You're looking at basically a replay of last year. We're going to see that interest rates have spiked just like last year, only to an even higher amount. Um, market is not panicking as much. There's this idea of inherent demand, demand that is always going to be there and is not motivated or incentivized by market terms such as rapid appreciation, ultra low interest rates that we saw in 2020 and 2021. And uh, this market is absolutely going to test that theory. But for now, you'll see the pinkish line there, very similar to the red line. Um, the red line is... Uh, picking up a little bit there, but until we cross over that, um, it's it's just, again, very similar to last year. And it will be very interesting to see over the next couple of months. We have the slowest months of the year that we're heading into here in terms of November and December, and we have the highest rates and lowest affordability that we've seen probably since 1982, 40 years. So it'll be interesting. I think that dark red line will stay below the pink line, but it's going to get close and they're probably going to touch there soon. Um, Jeb did not have time to get us the Orange County and HB figures here, but we'll be back and get those updated next week and he'll probably give us both sets of numbers for those of you that are interested. Um, in terms of pending under contract and new contracts, we've got 52,000 newly pending this week, 326,000 uh, under contract. That pretty similar to last year, 55,000 newly pending last year, 351,000 total. So a little less sales, a little less newly pending, uh, but also a little less inventory to choose from. So as you can see, just another chart here showing inventory. These guys um, shortened our timeline. It used to go back to about 2015 or so. We only see 2019 through 2023 right now, but have not reached the peaks that we saw last year, um, but would not rule it out between now and the end of the year. But anyway, you cut it. We are well down from the million or so uh, active inventory that we had in what was that January of 2019. Um, national single family new listings. Again, you see it just trends down here through the year. We are at the part of the year that um, most people that were serious about selling want to sell in the spring, want to sell in the summer and get moved into their new home by the time school year starts and definitely by the time the holidays start. So we will see that continuing to trend down um, there through uh, through the rest of the year. 
With that, um, this just puts everything into context. The weekly change we went from 546,000 uh, units of active, active inventory to 554,000. Last year, we had went from 567 to 571. So a little less inventory, a very similar move, uh, maybe a little bit more new listings this week, this year. Um, inventory bottom for last year was 240 before things started backing up. The peak for this year is 554. You'll notice that is this week. It's peak of inventory. Um, for context, active listings this week in 2015, a much more normal market, we're at a million one seventy one. So we're well below fifty percent of that. Median prices, um, as you can see from the arc of every year, not only does sales volume and active inventory decrease at the end of the year, median prices come down. Um, so we have hit a level. Well, now we're at four thirty nine. Last year we were at four thirty. So still just a hair above that. Um, for all intents and purposes, last year and this year look very very similar. Um, with that, national single family listings with a price decrease. We still have less than last year. Kind of to be expected, um, people were a little bit panicked and more interested in selling rapidly last year before they saw any more slowing in the market. And then also just at this point this year, people are probably a little more realistic about pricing their homes and not thinking that they're getting spring of 2022 prices, but definitely kind of at the, the levels that we last saw in 2019 or so. So not out of the norm, but definitely have trended up from the super hot years of 2020 and 2021. So now let's look at some of the numbers here. We've had you guys ask repeatedly, hey, is a recession coming? Or why are people still talking about recession? Uh, we were supposed to have this yield curve invert and it meant that we we're gonna be in a recession and we haven't seen it. There's gonna be no recession coming. So this chart here, the gray bars, as always, show previous recessions, and the blue line is the year-over-year -year change in the leading economic indicators. So you can see over here on the right side, we have currently seen a big dip over the last 12 months in the leading economic indicators. And every time we've seen that, you know, in the last 20-something years, that has led to a recession. So does that mean we're going to see it this time? Um, it's worth pointing out that the two biggest factors in the leading economic indicators are, um, of course, I'm going to draw a blank on this, but one of them is a household survey of expectations and the other is the yield curve inversion itself. So when we see that and they factor into this, that's a large reason for that blue line coming down. So uh, we're going to see, we're getting conflicting signals here. So this one here is indicators used to determine whether the economy is in a recession. So we've got non-farm payrolls, real consumption, household employment, real gross domestic output, real GDP, real personal income, excluding transfers, real manufacturing trade sales. If you look at that, those are all at or above 100 and trending up. So it may not show an economy on fire, but it definitely shows an expanding economy, which is the opposite of what we would see as a recession. The NBAR defines a recession as a significant decline in economic activity that is spread across the economy and that lasts more than a few months. So leading economic indicator says, hey, recession's inevitable and coming soon. All of these figures are telling us, hey, don't necessarily see it. Another one here, let's actually look real quick here. Non-farm payrolls, the craziest line up here, this blue one that the Fed keeps looking at and saying, hey, non-farm payrolls are hot. We're getting these big numbers. I don't like the number. This is a much better look. So this is US challenger layoffs and weekly jobless claims, um, more consistent and and dependable data, but they're telling a similar story here. We don't see uh, any weakness in terms of a spike in jobless claims or layoffs. People, businesses are holding on to their employees. Hiring may not be as robust, but they're also not letting go of people. So we are seeing that tight labor market. 
So here is Morgan Stanley. Again, doesn't tell us that these guys are geniuses and have the best or only insight here, but they are very bearish right now and, and are in the camp that we will see a recession. So just some points they're making. Large capital equipment decisions are being deferred. Global manufacturing momentum is recessionary. Leading companies, ASML and Tesla, are highlighting the effects of higher rates on their businesses. Destocking is only at an intermediate phase. Order softness is no longer confined to just China or an end market like construction. Capital goods companies have been over-earning in areas like electrification distribution, uh, where future margin risks lie. And the Buffett indicator suggests around 15% sector downside to post great, uh, great financial crisis valuation levels. So um, again, mixed signals. Smart people saying, hey, recession is absolutely coming. Other smart people saying, nope, soft landing and we've totally skipped it, missed it, don't need to worry about it. Um, this we've talked about and just again, want to put this in context in a couple of slides here that will give us some context on this. This is total public debt as a percentage of GDP. So during the pandemic there in 2020, it spiked to the highest levels ever. It has normalized somewhat. I wouldn't call it normalized because we're still, you know, 20% above where we were. In a perfect world, that's well below 100%. The federal debt is less than what the annual gross domestic product is. And unfortunately, that's not where we're at. So we are going to see here, it's going to be really hard to get us back to that level. So why is this a problem? So net interest costs are projected to rise sharply. So we see here the debt is not at the highest level relative to GDP, but the debt itself in absolute terms is the highest that it's ever been. The average uh, maturity on treasury debt is about six years. So we're not even two years into this rate hiking cycle. So who knows, in two years, maybe something else happens and we're back at ultra low interest rates and we don't really see the full effect of this. But this is according to the Congressional Budget Office. They are projecting like right now, we are at $650 billion in annual interest expense just on the federal debt. Now, if we look forward here, it's about 2028, we go over a trillion dollars of, of interest. And by 2031, uh, 1.2 trillion, approaching 1.4 trillion in the next 10 years. That's a problem. So um, I've always been in the camp that if something can't be true, it won't be true. We're gonna see right here that our government cannot afford to pay that. So this is cumulative receipts on the left and then outlays and then surplus or deficit through fiscal year 2020, 23. So if you look at this, we have 4.439 billion in receipts and we have 6.134 billion in outlays. So if we add up the parts up here up top, we got to pay for social security, health, Medicare, national defense, income security, um, those other forms of, of welfare. So if we add all this up, there's nothing discretionary in there. There's nothing really in there to cut and we're already 1.7 billion to the negative. So the big one there is that is factoring in net interest at 659 billion. We are in within five years going to be looking at one trillion unless we have a turnaround in interest rates. Now, does that guarantee that interest rates are going to go lower? We talked about this a little bit last week on the show. We have people in the comments pop up. Government's borrowed too much money. The world's screwed and rates are going to 10, 12, 15 percent. Let's just say if that were the case, this is projecting that rates stay similar to where they are today with some improvement normalization. If rates went 30, 40 percent higher from where they are today, these numbers get astronomical and bad really fast. So going back to my point of saying, if something can't be true, our government can't afford to pay that. We can't run those deficits. Something will break. There will be a problem uh, sooner rather than later. Wanted to throw this one in here. Uh, rent yields have declined relative to risk-free yields. What does that mean? 
Um, these different lines, they all sort of match up with each other, but we got office rents, industrial rents, retail rents, multifamily, and then the red line is just the average of all of that. But if you look, they're all under 4%, you know, anywhere from one to 3% returns on that. Risk-free treasury yields um, on, on almost any maturity, you wanna buy a six month treasury bill, you wanna buy a, a 30 year, you're getting up over 5% or close to it uh, at this point. So why would people invest in, in commercial real estate of any type at this point, um, including multifamily residential real estate, when you can get a better yield just parking your money and waiting for better times? So this one, we also get a bunch of questions in relation to how are builders able to do this? What does it mean? How long will they continue doing this? So this is from John Burns Consulting. Interesting chart here showing just one big national builder, Pulte Homes. They own Pulte Mortgage, so it's two arms of the same company. But if we look here in April, they were offering a 4.99 30-year fixed rate. In June, that had gone up to five and a quarter. In July, that had gone up to five and a half. And as of October, closing by December, they're offering five and three quarters. And that's gone up a ton, three quarters of a percent. But during the same time, rates have gone up about a percent and a half. So builders are increasing their subsidy in terms of interest rates and managing lower payments. So let's look at this, the implied cost of buying that down as the market rate jumps. So what did that cost um, in terms of where are, where are mortgage rates and then what is the buy down they're offering? So the blue is where rates were at at the time, yellow is what they were buying it down to. And you can see that differential is much, much bigger, but the cost of doing that is now up to about $34,000. We talked on the show last week that they have 20 to 30% margins. If the median priced home is four to $500,000, we're talking 100,000, 120, $140,000 of profit. So $34,000 eats into that pretty majorly, 20 to up to 22, down to 19. Um, builders, it's a cost of doing business. They need to move their money. They need to move on to the next deal. They need to build more homes. Um, but where we're at right now, we are getting to a point where continuing to offer those ultra low interest rates is going to cramp their margins and going to present problems for builders going forward. I didn't have time to pull that data in. We actually got new home sales figures today that vastly exceeded expectations. Um, and it really is this. This is this is what we're looking at. We have a very tight market in terms of resales, in terms of inventory and what's available. So people are finding it easier to go into a builder, get a home, get what they want, have a definite, semi-definite, which you guys have shown us and, and learned here, a semi-definite closing period on that. And they're getting a subsidized interest rate at the same time with a much more manageable payment. So um, until this reverses and either rates come down and builders don't need to do this any longer or they choose not to, we'll continue to see strong sales uh, for, for new homes. This um, I thought was interesting because we saw this last year. We went from Q1, uh, Q1 of, of 2022, 9% cancellation. So you can see anywhere plus or minus 10% through 2020 through 2021. It went up to 15, it went up to 24, peaked at 32%. Their stocks were doing poorly, builder stocks were doing poorly at that time. And everyone's saying, oh my God, these builders are in trouble. Well, as we all know, the market stabilized. Market's not good, not positive, not awesome in any major way but they have managed to navigate this. And we went down to 17%, down to 13%, and now they're up around 15%. And I would not be surprised to see that increase. Um, but 20% cancellations, they are able to manage that pretty easily. 
This one here, we talk a lot on the show. People say these home prices have to come down. People are going to lose their homes. They can't afford at these levels. Affordability is only an issue for buyers in the current market. And we see that is an issue. Um, this is a slightly out of date chart here from earlier in the week, 7.63% for new mortgages, but for all outstanding mortgages, the average uh, effective interest rate on debt outstanding is 3.6%, paying less than half of that. And they bought those homes at lower prices. So those are lower loans. So it tells you what some of that lock-in effect is. It tells you why the market is really solid in terms of not having forced sales of people losing their homes because they've got great interest rates and a lot of nested equity. So this one here, we've talked a million times. The Fed does not directly control interest rates. But in the short run, when they're embarking on a tightening cycle, it definitely, you see that mortgage rates have followed up the uh, the market and treasury yields have actually exceeded what the Fed has done. But wanted to show here, uh, the next meeting, 99.7% chance, according to the futures market, that they hold rates the same. The December meeting, 72.5% chance that they hold the same. Um, and almost all of the remaining odds uh, would be for an increase. At the next meeting, January, 63% chance they hold them the same. 33% chance that they would hike. Uh, and then March meeting, 59% chance they hold them the same. 30% chance that they hike. And then you start seeing some probability of a cut or possibility of a cut, I should say. It's under 10%. But the futures market is saying it's at least a possibility. Now, going into the May and June meetings, we still have the, the plurality of opinion in the futures market is that you would have the market, uh, the, the Fed rate, Fed funds rate uh, remain level, but the greater likelihood is for a cut versus uh, an increase. So we're looking at that sometime in the second half of the year, we're going to see two to three cuts. The market will start front running that at some point when they're convinced and believe that's going to happen and yields will come down. So really the only question we have to answer now is where do yields peak before they start coming down? Because we haven't necessarily seen that. Um, thought this chart was interesting. This goes back to 1971. This is the time frame between the last rate hike and the first rate cut. So we had two months, six months, three months, two months, five months, five months, eight months, 15 months in 2007, and then seven months here in, in 2019. So if you look at that, five, six, seven, eight months is what we would typically expect, really only one outlier out there longer than eight months. So if we look back at this and we say the futures market is saying possibly one more hike, but my guess is we don't ever see it. We saw some improvement earlier in the week. Um, and much of that could be attributed. There wasn't a whole lot of news that was positive for bonds that would have moved that. But the hedge fund manager, Bill Ackman, and then uh, bond fund manager, Bill Gross, both came out and said, Ackman said they are closing out their short position in long-term treasuries. And Gross was actually establishing a long position in futures in long-term treasuries. So both of them think we, if we are not at the absolute peak, we are somewhere near the peak. If that's true, they believe the economy is going to weaken here before the end of the year. And if that happens, we will not see another Fed hike. So if that's the case, it's been two months already. So four months out in the future, we're really talking February or March. It's not far off from what the market here is projecting. I would expect that we will see Fed cuts a little bit earlier than what uh, what the futures market is projecting. And we showed that chart about two months ago. The futures market is generally wrong 
sort of too conservative in terms of a change of direction. They're too late to pick up uh, Fed hikes and they're too late to pick up Fed cuts. So that, does that guarantee it's going to happen? No. And I still am of the opinion the Fed will not cut until they break something and there's an issue and there's a reason for them to do that. I'm with Gross and Ackman. I think that's going to happen in the next three to six months and we will see a, a cut sooner rather than later. But still, what does that mean? March at the earliest, May, June, probably more likely. So keep that in mind here. Uh, of what that means. The 10-year treasury yield, Jeb threw this one in from Housing Wire, but I actually like this look here a little bit better. This is the last five trading days since we were here. So you guys all saw the big headlines on Friday. We hit 5%. Um, was, this was Monday or Tuesday. We got all the way back down to 481. And that was basically on the news what we just talked about of Gross and Ackman changing their position and their ability to kind of talk the market in another direction. Tomorrow, we have uh, third quarter GDP figures coming out, and there is a great likelihood that it's going to be a number hotter than the Fed would like. And that sounds crazy because that means the economy is doing well. But if that comes in at 4% or higher, it will mean at least a test of this 5%. And this move from 4.81 to 4.9 over the last day or so um, is just the market preparing for that. You don't want to be a trader sitting down here um, with your bets placed at 4.81 if we make this run up to 5%. So totally logical move in that direction today. The numbers tomorrow will dictate. And if we had a hot number, if it comes out 5.5%, we're running through 5% pretty easily. So key levels, this is, I, now I look at this number as funny. We talk about the ceiling and the floor. Um, that is the ceiling until it's broken. So 5% uh, is a ceiling until and unless it gets broken. We were below 491. We got to 481, um, but we're to the high end of that. And we looked at the chart last week. You look at the channel, you look at the range, there is nothing positive. So until we get a major reversal, it is best to think we are in a negative interest rate environment. Despite the fact that I just said, I think it's going to turn at some point in the next two, three, six months. You don't front run that. You wait and you get confirmation from the charts. So um, all of that, we had this comment on the Educated Homebuyer page this week, um, Kyle in Pennsylvania. And I, I don't remember whether Kyle actually watches here or not, or just comments uh, on this, but stop trying to predict interest rates. You have no idea and no one else does either. Well, kind of correct. I, I can't tell you what's going to happen in the next month. I can't tell you what's going to happen in the next 90 days, but in the macro view, we're not predicting. We all have to make projections. You have to do it for your household. I have to do it for my business. Economists have to do it for their companies, whether they work for a bank, whether they work for uh, a lender, whether they work for a major multinational company. They have to know what supply and demand is going to look like, what the cost of funds is going to look like. So we don't have the ability to say, hey, I don't have a crystal ball, so I can't make a projection. That's the info that we're looking at. That's the best information that we have available. And I definitely think we are near the peak. And if I were to be wrong, what would be the thing that leads me to being wrong? It would be that we have too much supply, too much government debt, and not enough buyers willing to pay for it at current yields. Gross and Ackman, two of the biggest traders in global bond markets, are saying, no, these yields are a little bit high. Um, they're not saying they need to be 3%. They're not saying they need to be 2%. They're saying 5% is a little bit high. The markets will tell us over the coming months. So I just thought it was an interesting comment. Wanted to throw it in there. What does this mean? As of today, Mortgage News Daily says we're clinging just below 8%. Um, the interesting thing I thought here this week, the 30-year jumbo at 8.05%. It's been a long time since we've seen jumbo averages quoted as higher than 30-year fixed, but that's telling us Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, FHA, VA, USDA, very robust markets for those mortgages. The markets for jumbo loans 
less liquid, lower volume, fewer investors, fewer buyers. We're seeing a lot more pressure in that. Tighter underwriting guidelines, higher yields required. So uh, it's interesting. Maybe it's only interesting to me. So with that, um, we got through 25 charts in 23 minutes. So I'm somewhat proud of myself that we didn't go too long on that. But the most important part of the show, as always, is answering your questions wherever you guys want to go with it. We don't have a crystal ball. I do have 27 years of experience. We do read a lot. My wife tells me I read too much, but uh, it is what it is. So let's roll through here and start ask, answering. Ask, you guys are going to ask the questions. I'm going to answer the questions. So Alberto has a great question here. Uh, what do you expect for the rest of the year for the housing market? Let's kind of go back to those charts and what we just talked about. I think it's going to look a lot like last year. It's going to continue to be slow, slow sales volume, um, flattish prices because we're not in that time of year. Even in a good market, we normally see the market being flat in prices through November, December, January. It's going to be February, Super Bowlish time before we start seeing activity pick up. How much activity picks up is going to be dependent on interest rates because I think what we've seen here right now, we don't have supply demand dynamics that will bring prices down significantly. When I say that, even if prices drop 5%, really does not move the needle on affordability. It might convince some people that, hey, it's going to drop another 5%, so I'm going to delay my activity. But really what we're talking about right now, and the people that I'm talking to, that concept of inherent demand, I don't love it. I don't love it as an idea. But when I step back and I start looking at it, it is people in really solid financial positions that are ready at, in their life to become a homeowner. And they're like, it'll work itself out. I earn enough money, I can afford this, and hopefully I'm going to be able to refinance it lower at some point. But if not, I'm cool with it where it is. So from that um, slow, not a lot of activity, not a lot of movement in prices, I do expect there to be some issues and some cracks in the economy that will lead to lower rates. Um, let's put that in context, lower rates. If rates drop 10%, so from a 5% treasury yield to a four and a half, that still leaves us as a rate at seven and a half percent. If we had said six months ago that rates had dropped to seven and a half percent, you say, what in the world are you talking about? They're not even going to peak at seven and a half. So that's not something super stimulative. It's not something that you know changes the market around significantly. And I'm not even projecting a 10% drop in interest rates. I'm saying it's possible. Um, and at some point in the next six to nine months, we are going to see that. Um, and if not, it's telling us that we have bigger problems, that people are losing faith in the U.S. government and the ability to constrain spending to the degree that they are able to do that. And then also to find buyers for the debt that they're continually issuing. So hopefully that was helpful. Um, I think flattish, slow volume, and the folks that are buying are the folks that are really strong hands and capable of doing it. I don't have a lot of people who are pressing the odds and saying, hey, you know what? We kind of think we're in a solid relationship. I kind of think my job is good. I think I'll have good money next year. Let's take on a 50% debt to income ratio loan. Um, some refinances out there look like that, but not purchases in the current market. So Anya, who is always here for us every week and asking good questions. What is busy now and what isn't? Um, a little bit of an uptick. So we just talked about because we have so much nested equity, we have so many low interest rates, I do not expect that we're going to have a wave of forced sales. But I will say there is a small undercurrent of not distress, um, but people reaching out uh, either to get a second mortgage to pay off some debt 
um, to do some home improvements that they can't delay. Not necessarily, hey, we're going to put an awesome backyard in, but they're saying something something broke, something needs to be fixed, that type of stuff. Um, so I think it's reasonable that we've seen the low in distressed and distress will kick up. I wouldn't get alarmed when you see those numbers. We really need to look at the absolute levels and to realize those absolute levels are going to be limited by the ultra low interest rates, the large amounts of equity and the few options for people if they were to lose their home. Doesn't mean that there's no one out there that's going to be forced to sell. We're not talking about foreclosures. We're not talking about short sales because 95% of people are sitting on plenty of equity to sell at a discount if they had to and still walk away as an equity sale. So we're just talking about people who don't have a choice. They say, hey, I got 200,000 in equity and I don't have a way to make my mortgage payment next month or I missed three mortgage payments. But for the most part, homeowners are the strongest hands out there. Homeowners are older. Homeowners are higher earners. Homeowners have higher net worth outside of home equity in addition to their home equity. So we're talking about the strongest hands and they're in the best position they've been ever. So we'll see. That's, that's what I'm seeing. And, and again, the folks that I'm talking to, dual incomes, young people in their early 30s with good jobs. And why is it not the people that are 45 or my age, 50? Because I already have a house. And I'm, I'm looking for when is the optimal time for me to move. And this is not an optimal time. But if you're 33 and you just got married two years ago, you'd like to have a kid and you and your husband both make $130,000 a year, which a lot of folks that I talk to, that's very similar. Or we got one at 100, one at 150. We've got both of them at $90,000. These are good incomes. They can qualify for seven, eight. $900,000 mortgages to buy million dollar, million one properties. Don't like it. No one likes that affordability, but they're able to do that. So kind of, again, going back to that concept there of, of inherent demand. Hero TCG says 86 watching, only 24 likes on the video. We're going to hear it soon. That's Jeb. That's Jeb's line, but I'm very happy that you reminded me to do that. We only have 109 people here. So either we've got a slow week or not having Jeb's pretty face here. He's going to like that. He's going to like that we only had 109. So we must not have enough likes. We must not be putting a good enough signal out there. Uh, or people are, are losing interest here seasonally in uh, in what's going on, going on. So let's look here. What else do we have? Praxia makes a comment, and I wish I had the chart here. We have it in, in one of the slideshows from a few weeks ago. So some markets up near 10% year over year, some markets down around that much. However, the national average is very slightly up. For the most part, that's pretty darn accurate. But the only market that I've seen that is double digit down is Austin, still massively up over the last three or four years. Um, but that's the big market that dipped. There are a handful of others that are in that six to 7% range. Um, if you look, Bay Area shows that, and Bay Area, you would think being here in California, I'd have a better handle on that, um, but their price is uh, just more volatile and just weird relative to the rest of the country. I kind of think of them as their own little thing up there. So um, for the most part, that's correct. We're, we're up year over year, and if we see more of the same next year, we're likely to see more of the same in home values. There's really not a recipe for a big decrease, but with affordability at this level, there's not a recipe for people pushing home prices higher. Even if they wanted to, most people are kind of at the limits either of what their debt to income ratio per the guidelines will allow them to do 
or what their conscious conscience and, and their brain says is reasonable for them. And I can tell you that for the most part, the people I'm dealing with right now are not pushing debt to income ratios. Again, they're people with good incomes and it may be higher than what we saw two years ago, but we're not pinned at the max. And that's anecdotal. That is just me. That's not the market as a whole. Um, saw a very interesting article today that had talked about the Rust Belt outperforming every other part of the country. And you start digging into it and you're like, are we really proposing this is where people go? Or is this what a free market with people that are somewhat mobile will do? So we know what markets like Austin, like Boise, like uh, like Salt Lake City, like Colorado Springs, all of these areas that did really well and outperformed, they're having affordability issues. But if you look like areas like Pennsylvania, Detroit, Cleveland, Omaha, those areas did not have the big run up. So there are people who are making the decision, hey, I'm going to make 20% less if I go there, but my housing cost is 60% less. So I'm cool with that. It's just sort of a normalizing of the market. Those markets lagged. And now that they're much more affordable, they're kind of normalizing in relation to it. So um, you're any of you that are looking at these charts, there's good data out there, not just data from Gemini, not just the stuff that we look at, but I, I see good data pop up every day. What I would say is be careful about the analysis. Be careful of what people are telling you is the pitch in terms of what this means, because I do see a lot of inaccurate analysis, but the data is out there. We have a lot of, of good data. We've got George Lopez, and I'm hoping it's not George Lopez, the comedian, but George is asking, should I quit my real estate job? Um, I, first, the funny thing is biased in, in five years of, of us doing this show or three and a half years of doing this show. Most people are asking, should I quit my job and get into real estate? Um, real estate is a tough gig right now. If you don't have a database, if you don't have some type of in or a system of, of generating business of the people that are transacting today, this is a tough business. Um, and each one of these cycles and waves sort of does different things. I don't know that either real estate or mortgage will ever be the same on the far end of this. Uh, we have automation. We have some lawsuits that Jeb talked about last week in the real estate space. Um, we're going to have less mortgage people on the far side of this and margins will get cheaper. Um, I, you notice I don't didn't say loans will get cheaper for you as an end borrower um, because the government and their infinite wisdom keeps doing stupid things that makes compliance and production costs more expensive. But in terms of profitability, both for the salesperson selling you the loan and the person, uh, the company doing the loans, that profitability is going to be compressed. So um, we can look at it and say that's a good thing. It probably is. We've had more salespeople on both the real estate and mortgage side than we need. I would happily make half what I make per loan if I could do twice as many loans without having to spend the majority of my time explaining to people why the other person they're talking to is telling them a number that's not realistic, telling them something they can do that they cannot do. I have a client right now, it's a refinance that we're doing. She talked to three lenders. I told her the other two are, one is giving you a number that is not realistic. They're not even quoting you a, non, uh, a cash out number. The other was saying that they could get something done that I knew is possible to do, but I also knew that company's business structure, it's call center. There's no way this person pre-flighted it with one of their investors. Sure enough, that's where we ended up in that transaction. So long way of saying, some of our pay is just in the hours of work that is involved in selling people away from 
from either people that are incompetent or liars out there. So if we have less competition and the margins come down, that would be a good thing. As technology continues to improve and we can do our job much easier, like for us in, in the 1990s, it's almost quaint to talk about borrowers would fax over their documentation or bring it to my office. You know, if you're 30 minutes away, that's a pain in the butt to come over and bring all the documentation. Hopefully you brought all the right stuff. Hopefully the copier in the office is working properly. If you fax, hopefully you don't get a busy signal. Hopefully you don't have two pages pulling through at a time. Hopefully it's not blurry. So we don't have any of that crap now. Our borrowers oftentimes can authorize their bank to send us perfect clear PDFs of their bank statements. They can go onto the website and download pay stubs, W-2s, tax returns. Everything is available and can be securely and instantly uploaded. And as that gets more and more automated, we actually saw here in the last week, someone did the first fully automated mortgage. And when I mean fully automated, that it was uh, a chat bot that did the borrower interview, took the application, asked them what documentation to upload, analyzed that information, ran it through the automated approval, and got the loan approved. Very few people are qualified in that way and have that type of documentation. But what I will say is we will see more and more of that. People like me will never go away, but instead of doing the basic simple W-2 borrower that can go anywhere and the robot can do the loan, we're gonna get more and more of the difficult ones. I've got a client up in Washington right now that there's no world. He could have called 20 other people and no one would have got it done. We're having a hard time getting it done, but we're finally after about two and a half months going to have that done for him tomorrow. And we'll see more of those difficult files that sort of get weeded out. So um, should you quit your job and get into real estate? I would think strongly about it. I would think there are other options that are going to be more fulfilling and a little bit easier for you. And I'm not that we're looking in terms of what's the easiest path, but um, in terms of reward uh, and intrinsic and monetary for the amount of effort put into it, I don't know that real estate's where it is. So ZL has a similar question here. Are tenured realtors like yourselves happy that COVID realtors are leaving due to this market? Are there any downsides to getting excess realtors out? I'm not a realtor. I'm a mortgage originator. Jeb, our resident real estate expert, is, is not here tonight. But I will say the only reason why people are not happy that people are getting forced out of the business is it means that if you were top of the food chain, it's you're still eating, but it's a it's a thinner pool of, of what you get to eat. So you're not eating as well as you were. But in terms of looking forward, I look at this as a necessary evil. If you look at from 2007 forward, the government intervened every couple of years where we never had a spike in interest rates that forced all of the call centers out of business. So, you know, call centers sort of evolved and left Southern California, but back prior to the crisis, all of the subprime shops, all of the call centers, almost all of them were located here in Orange County. So everywhere you looked, you had young, used car salesmen, dumber than dirt, driving around in Bentleys and pulling up to their million dollar houses. I don't think anyone will miss those days. Um, we all know realtors that are not particularly good, but if you're in a market where homes are a million and a half and a commission's $40,000 and you can sell a house every other month, you make a couple hundred thousand dollars. Nothing should be that simple. So the less competition there is, and I will tell you this, every person I know in real estate or mortgage, you said, hey, if you make it twice as easy for me to get a customer, I am more than willing to make way less money off of this. The majority of our time is spent inefficiently chasing a customer and fighting off uh, incompetent people or, or worse. So no, I don't think anyone is regretting it. I don't think there's any downside out there. You know, during COVID, when we had uh, listings nationwide 
hit their lowest level. We had more realtors than we had homes for sale. There's no world in, in which we need that. Um, once you go down a path, it's hard to unwind it and fix it and change it entirely um, just because things are entrenched. But if we could start over, we would build a very different system, a system that would be better for the professionals, a system that would be better for the borrowers and buyers and sellers of homes. So probably beat that question to death, but that is what it is. So Fred like this question. They say renting is less expensive than buying right now. How realistic is that statement? Like how much less is the comparable house to rent versus buy in the same neighborhood? This varies greatly by where you are in the country. Um, but if we're talking some type of minimum down, zero for a VA or USDA to three to 5% FHA conventional. If you're in Southern California, you can rent a house for about $4,500, 4,000 to $4,500 and to own that house would be seven or $8,000. So you're talking like a, it's almost double 70, 80% premium to own. Now, is that a fair comparison? Not necessarily a fair comparison because some of the payment for owning is going towards principal. Even if the values go up to 3% a year, you're getting some appreciation. Uh, depending on your situation, you may get tax benefits. So there's some other things there, but in a true rent versus own analysis, we're also talking about having to pay for maintenance, um, any number of other things. And we don't talk about taxes and insurance because that gets captured in the monthly payment in terms of what we're talking about. Now, if you look at other parts of the country, if you go somewhere where you can buy an entry-level home for $350,000, that might be an $800 or a $700 difference in the monthly payment, which again, some of that is absorbed with the amortization of the mortgage and potential appreciation, but nearly everywhere. I mean, there are really only a handful of, of really low-priced Rust Belt markets where it is cheaper to own or to rent than own right now. What I like to point out is that can tell you what your best move is in the short run. But if you decide that renting is, is better in the short run, what I think everyone needs to be doing is becoming the person who can successfully become a homeowner in the future. Market dynamics will change. If they never change and you focused on saving money, maximizing your credit score, building up your career and income, you're never going to be unhappy about that. But if and when the market normalizes and we get 5% interest rates, and now we have maybe a $1,000 difference in that monthly payment, now you're able to justify stepping into the market. Because over time, what we do know is that homeowners have lower housing costs. Um, and, and if we look at it, it really, it takes about 10 years right now with that big gap it's about 10 years before it would be literally cheaper to own that home than to rent. But if we go 10 years forward to that, and you look at how exorbitant rents will be at that point, even if they only track inflation, if we go back about 50 years, rents have increased about 1% above the rate of inflation. And if we project that forwards, it is astronomical what you see in terms of rents. And we did this, I believe, on the podcast uh, a week or so ago. But what we looked at is the average rent uh, right now is $1,700. The average mortgage payment in the U.S. is $1,675. So it is cheaper to own than to rent. But that's all of the people that bought at much lower prices and have much lower interest rates. But it also, that $1,701 average rent is for a two-bedroom apartment. So we're not even talking qualitatively the same things. If we go back 
60, 70 years in the United States. Home ownership, since they've tracked it, has been above 60% and it peaked at about 69%. That's too high. There's not 69% of American households are not capable of successfully being homeowners. So somewhere around 65, 66% is the right number. There are reasons for that. The financial reasons, the emotional reasons, the logical reasons of why people want to own homes. That will ebb and flow as affordability dictates, kind of puts a break on the market. But I, I get a version of this all the time. Hey, got married. My wife and I are in an apartment. Just found out she's pregnant and we got to get the hell out of here. She's not having a baby in an apartment. That thinking doesn't change regardless of what changed. It could be two women married and living together and they're going to adopt. It's like the same things happen. Whatever your lifestyle choices are, we all kind of want the same things. There are more people choosing to be single. But for the most part, however you couple up, whether you get married, registered domestic partnership, cohabitating, whatever you call it, most people want to live together. They want to build a family. They want to go and, and get a home and a place to call that. So I don't think that's going to change. So a long ways down the line to answering your question, but it's a, it's a tough market. And more and more people are rightfully and justifiably saying now is just not a realistic or right time for me to, to enter into the market. So ZL, this is another real estate question and I wish Jeb was here. Maybe come back and, and ask this question. He'd give you a better idea. Are there any upsides to not using a buyer's agent? Keep hearing people thinking they can facilitate a sale themselves to bypass the agent. If you went to a listing agent and said, hey, I want to represent myself, they probably wouldn't work with you. There's too much liability in that. Some of them will represent you, but that dual agency represents a conflict, a potential conflict of interest and a problem for them. So in the best case scenario, you get them to give credit you some of their commission or charge a lower commission that allows you to get a better price. But for the most part, you are better off having your own representation. Jeb would have a much more detailed answer for that. Um, I can say, it's kind of hard for me to say because I am a licensed broker. So when I buy and sell real estate, I represent myself. But even if I weren't, I don't think I would I would want as a, a person who is not a real estate professional to go in without representation that is only on my side. Look at it this way. If you found the best listing agent in the world who was the most neutral, best arbiter of, of fair, the best thing they can do for you and the seller is mediate the middle ground that works for both of you. I want someone on my side that's going to fight for me. I'm not saying I want to win that transaction and the other person has to lose. I'm just saying I want someone who doesn't have any responsibilities to anyone else in that transaction. So hopefully that is helpful there. So this one here, critical thinker, realtors and loan officers are in trouble. Uh, it depends. Depends on what you're saying. Um, the 80% uh, that are at the bottom of the market and have never done any significant volume, absolutely in trouble. I believe we saw just in the last 12 months I don't know that I believe this data and take it with a grain of salt because I didn't verify it, but I saw it from a source that I do trust that says 50% of mortgage licenses were not renewed in the last 12 months. Um, so does that mean they're in trouble? Yeah. Yeah. It does mean that a majority of them are, but in the big picture, um, I, I think those people are better served being somewhere else. A lot of people came into this industry because they thought it was easy money, um, you know, work part days, go golf. And the reality of it, it's not fun. I have a lot of friends who are really good top producing loan officers, loan officers that do three, $400 million of loans that produce two, three times what, what I do. Um, and we talk and it's, it's not, 
It's not a fun and easy market. Um, still very fulfilling in terms of helping people achieve their dreams and their financial goals and advising them on the best way to do that. But there's just a lot of crap uh, on the back of it right now. Transactions are more difficult. Um, lenders, they haven't changed or tightened their guidelines. It's just they're wanting to make sure that they're dotting their I's and crossing their T's. When it's 2020, you will accept a certain amount of defects in your loan because you have so much profit and so much margin that you can absorb it. This isn't that market. So um, interesting thought. Don't necessarily disagree with you. Look at you guys are the best. So I'm here on my own. I'm not thinking everything through. And Kel says, don't forget that we can help you. So how can Jeb help you? How can Josh help you? Uh, whether you need a real estate professional, if you are in, in or around Orange County, Jeb and his team can help. If you are anywhere else in the country, Jeb has an awesome network of real estate professionals that he can connect you with to buy or sell a home. In terms of the mortgage side, we have a very good network of lenders around the country. I cover most of the Western United States, a couple of, of states in the South, it's about 18 out of the 50. So there's a very good chance that you'll get to talk to me um, if you're in the West or a couple of the populous states, Florida, Tennessee, stuff in the South where my team is licensed and can help. So from that perspective, if you need help and you wanna get connected, use that link below. I'll leave it scrolling there so that I don't forget. And big shout out to Kel for remembering. I don't want Jeb yelling at me for not uh, not reminding you guys. And uh, let's also make a plug for the podcast. If you guys are watching here on Jeb's channel, the biggest portion of this audience is on Jeb Smith's YouTube channel. This is also being simulcast to the Educated Homebuyers YouTube channel. But we have a podcast. The episodes go up every Tuesday at 5 a.m. So whether you want to go to Spotify, Apple Music, any of that fun stuff, you can listen to the audio. If you want the video, it also, Tuesday, 5 a.m., gets posted to at the Educated Homebuyer on YouTube. You can pick that up. And we, on the podcast, if for any reason you miss one of these Wednesday shows, we post them Friday morning where you can listen to the audio. I know we have a lot of you do it, miss a show during the week and catch up with it on Friday. So we'd appreciate that. Um, if you haven't done so already, like the video, subscribe to the channel, subscribe to the, the Educated Homebuyer. If you haven't checked it out, um, we get a lot of good feedback. The way I look at it, um, the Educated Homebuyer is like a buffet of everything you need to know to buy right, borrow smart, and build wealth. That doesn't mean that every one of those episodes are going to appeal to you, but we started this in February of 2022. So I think we did about 35, 38 episodes last year, and we're at 45 for this year. So about 80 episodes. Not all of those are going to appeal to you. Some of them are not evergreen. They're not even something you would want to go to, but there's probably 20, 25 episodes there that will give you a really solid grounding in the facts and figures that you need to know to make a good decision to enter the market, um, whatever all that fun stuff means for you. And if you're out there, you're paying attention, um, Jeb and I may be working on a new, improved, updated homebuyer course of, again, everything you need to know to buy right, borrow smart, and build wealth, and just to make that decision to know when is the right time to enter the market. Anyone that would be interested in such a course is thinking, hey, I would like to own a home, but there's a lot of questions. Where do I start? What does it mean? How do I run the numbers? Who do I need to build on my team? We're going to go through all that stuff. So get subscribed to the podcast, pay attention there, and we'll have that. So Jay is uh, is kind enough here to say, Jeb, take this money and divide it up to all the noobs who didn't listen to you two years ago, still waiting for the crash to help with their eight and a half percent. I don't think, Jay, the $10 
is going to help those folks uh, a whole lot. Uh, we, we saw the number to get a 5.75% rate, what, $34,000 for a builder to do that for one of those folks. But we appreciate it. Um, we still, you know, just so you guys know, this is funny. We've, it's about three years, I believe, we've been doing this. I don't believe Jeb has ever touched any of the Super Chat money. It is in a pot, uh, just building up. And whether we do a live event for you guys, a party, uh, something along those lines, um, that money is going to get spent or donated to a charity to, to help someone. So with that, we've got a lot of questions here. I know Jeb is fairly militant about not asking. Uh, again, if you've asked a question, I'm here by myself. If I miss, feel free to throw your question up. Um, Wow, we've got an interesting one here. Dan, this couldn't be a crazier statement ever. It's always cheaper and easier to buy a home without an agent. If you're still here, go ahead and give me like three bullet points of what would be cheaper or easier. Um, again, most listing agents won't represent uh, the seller in a transaction with you with no representation. They will require you to have representation. Um, if you are a skilled negotiator in another industry and you have a lot of knowledge and experience in real estate, is it possible that you could save yourself some money and go through it? Yeah, 95% of people are not capable of representing themselves. So crazy thought there. Alex with a really good question. What are the chances the government is forced to make some physical changes to appease the bond gods? And if so, what could that look like in the long run? If we go back to that chart we looked at at the top of the show, there is not a lot of discretionary spending uh, available. And we talk about the third rail of entitlements, social security being the big one, government pension benefits. Um, I don't know, I don't have the answers. Uh, we had a big, big problem that from 1980 or so, let's say from, from 2000 to, or we always use this this point. When Obama came into office, I believe we had a $7 trillion national debt. Today, we have $33 trillion. But if we take it back to about $25 trillion at the end of COVID, the actual cost to service that debt was lower than it was because rates had continued going down through that time frame. So just imagine if you were able to borrow, 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 borrow for 15 years, but your monthly payments continually decreased, you might be doing some crazy stuff. Our government has done some crazy stuff. And when you can borrow and spend without increasing the bill, without upsetting the budget, and you can buy votes, and again, this isn't a Republican thing, this isn't a Democrat thing, they both spend and waste money, they waste it in different ways. But when you can do that and buy votes, you continue to do that. So at some point, it works until it doesn't work. I don't know what the answer is, because again, when you go back and look at that chart from the beginning of the show, there's just not a lot of fat there that, that can be cut. Anthony, I really can't help you with this. Maybe come back and see if Jeb has a thought on it. But um, do you have a quick take of what you think of Toronto for sellers with lots of equity? Um, Toronto is like New York City. It's a very high priced market, um, very different market. The reason why it's hard for us to comment on it is that financing pays such a key play is such a key part in home values and what makes sense. And Canada has a very different mortgage finance system than we have here in the US much more tied to adjustable rate mortgages, so much more interest rate sensitive. So with that, 
Let's look here. Praxia back with another question. Good one. How close to mortgage news daily rates are highly qualified applicants being financed at day to day? Talking 800 credit score with 20% down. Usually we'll get you a little bit better than mortgage news daily. So I don't think they're actually quoting the absolute priced for perfection borrower. Um, when they were quoting just a hair under seven or a hair under 8% last week, Freudian slip, I was wishing we were just under seven. But when, when they were quoting just a hair under 8% last week, um, we got a couple of people locked at seven and three quarters. So there's a huge difference. No, but every little bit how helps. It's an, it's an important figure to, to look at. Again, just rolling through here. Jay, I have the same question as you here. You said, where's my girl Dina at? I haven't seen Dina ask any questions, post any comments. Dina, are you here just hiding out tonight? And I, I, we both missed you, Jay, and I both missed you. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Billion dollar ideas. If you are here next week, um, I want you to ask this question. So the question is, have you heard of someone investing their money into high interest paying monthly ETFs to qualify for a bigger loan? Uh, for example, putting 100,000 into an ETF that pays 1200 a month to increase my income. First of all, we can annuitize that income. A lot of loan programs um, will allow us to convert that to uh, uh, income stream. So you may not have to invest it. But the reason why I said, let's ask Jeb when he's back, um, one of our good friends uh, works for PNC Bank, top producing loan officer, probably top 50 in the country. Uh, and he had some pretty interesting strategies along this lines. Now, is it something that's going to help a first time buyer? Your average first time buyer doesn't have $100,000 sitting around. But high net worth borrowers that don't necessarily want to put a bigger down but need to qualify for a little bit more, there are some unique strategies. And, uh, and Jeb, I would love for him to kind of walk through that. So if you're around next Wednesday and Jeb's back, go ahead and, and ask him that. So Omar, this is a really good question. What is the advantage between going with you or my local bank? I want to buy a fixer upper home. The answer is almost always talk to both of us. Um, for the most part, I'm going to give you generalizations. You're going to be dealing with the bank teller. They don't necessarily have an experienced loan officer. Someone's been doing this for a long time. They're limited to their programs, their guidelines, their rate sheet. Now, what if it just so happens that you fit their guidelines? Their rate sheet is awesome and they can offer you wonderful terms. You only know if you ask them. Um, most times when we have that conversation, nine times out of 10, if not more, people will tell us our terms are better and the experience of working with us is a night and day difference. But I don't begrudge anyone asking the question. People will say, well, I'm going to go check with my credit union. Credit unions have the best rates. No, no, they don't. Most credit unions don't have good rates at all. 
but some of them have amazing rates. So you would never know unless you check and ask the question. So what I can say is someone comes to me, they're always going to get very good terms. Are they going to get the absolute best terms? I don't know, but knowledge, service, ex expertise, experience, but I don't begrudge anyone checking around. And if you end up having a relationship somewhere that gets you an awesome, amazing deal and that works for you, do it. But um, the answer is just check with both, compare and contrast. Interesting comment here. Roll cabs is I believe that across the board, flat tax of 9% for all. Um, we've got a lot of ideas, flat taxes, value added tax. There are things that can be done to make taxes fairer. Um, if you look at it and we go back to that chart, we're, we're spending two, what's the number? Is it, is it uh, two trillion more a year than we're bringing in? So when you look at that, something's got to give. We, we, we have to fix that. And one of the potential ways of fixing it is increasing taxes. How do you increase taxes without upsetting everyone? Jay, I got good news. Dina is here. She just hadn't commented and let us know uh, that, that she was here. So this is funny. Kel back with another good comment. Didn't want to jinx you, Josh, but you didn't freeze tonight. So you may have been able to tell last week that Jeb was incredibly frustrated by us freezing. So one thing here is no one else is in the office, just me. But Jeb did some research. Um, so we've tried any number of things. Some of them sound like superstition. Stand on one leg in the corner and you'll get better reception. Um, but I basically have everything on my supercomputer here that Wesley says is overkill. Um, got everything shut down except for the slides for the show and this. And it does seem to have uh, have done done well. I'm not even going to try here. As, I, as I'm trying, I tell you, I'm not going to try. As Rark G says, what will happen if the feds keep rates at current levels to the next time, nine to 12 months? Could there be dire consequences to the economy, employment, and what are the odds of this? Um, I don't think there could be dire consequences to the economy above and beyond what they've already done because they will cut if they start seeing signs of consequences. Like we look, I don't have to agree with them because I talk to a lot of CPAs, small business owners, and we're just not seeing this crazy hot economy that a lot of the data is showing. But the Fed is seeing that. They're not manufacturing these numbers. Those are real numbers. When we start seeing cracks in the dam and that starts giving way, they'll start cutting. And if it stays hot and we see employment continue to go down and we end up at 3.3, 3.2, 3 3.0% unemployment rate, they're justified and continue to keep rates higher. They will go until they break something. This, you know, we had a, another question on the Educate Homebuyer YouTube channel. Someone said, well, why can't there be a new normal? There's no reason why there can't be a new normal in anything. It's just the history of people telling you, hey, this is the new normal. They're generally wrong. When we have a history of anything, 50, 60, 70, 80 years that tells you something is going to happen, it's likely to happen. The, the, an object in motion is, is most likely to continue going on the same, same direction as it has in the past until something acts on it. For those of you that are into physics and engineering, you can correct and tell me what the exact saying is there with that. But long way of saying, until something breaks, we're going to stay where we're at. I don't think they're going to hike again. If they were to hike, it's because we see more strength than what we're seeing right now. Not even a ton, just any more strength than what we're seeing in the economy right now. And we talked earlier in the show that GDP number comes out super hot tomorrow. Anything is possible. So from that perspective, I, I don't think it's something to worry about because I don't think they would just 
tune the world out and go far beyond what is reasonable uh, for the economy. Doesn't mean they're doing what's optimal for the economy, but I don't think they're going to break it beyond repair. <laughs> ZL, I love this one. Dave Ramsey keeps saying a manually underwritten loan can compare with the best rates of an automatic underwrite. Is this true in some instances? So uh, understand how mortgages are sold in the secondary markets. They're bundled and we have a weighted average coupon. So interest rate, we have a weighted average FICO score, weighted average loan to value. So how much equity in the, is in those properties? So higher the credit scores, the lower the loan to value, all of that stuff, it's more valuable. Well, one of the things that is in there, how many of them are manually underwritten? Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac allow manual underwriting. FHA, VA, USDA allow manual underwriting. They're all allowed. They're not valued as highly by the secondary market. So is it possible that there's a lender out there that says, I will absorb this decrease in value in the secondary market because I like helping people who can't get an automated approval, aka people who are less qualified. So I want to serve less qualified people, people who are more likely to default and who I will make less money selling these loans in the secondary market. Is it possible? Yeah. Is it realistic? No. Dave, we've talked about Dave makes more money from residential real estate sales than anyone in the country. So if you listen to his show and you call and he connects you with the realtor, I'm not saying it's a bad setup. I'm saying as a big network that is awesome listenership, he's getting a little piece of lots of pies. So on the same piece, he's had a relationship with Churchill Mortgage for 20, 25 years. Churchill Mortgage is a good company. Churchill Mortgage specializes in 15-year loans and manual underwrites because they are the sponsor of the number one financial show in the United States who talks about 15-year mortgages and manual underwrites. So from that perspective, they're probably not penalizing you as much as anyone else, but I can tell you in my lifetime, I have never lost a loan to Churchill Mortgage. They're not big in California. Most of my clients don't talk to them, but the few times that they were Ramsey listeners, they talked to both. Again, it's a giant call center. It could be the best call center. Churchill may train their people better. They may get more experienced people. They manage them better. They may offer better things that jive with what Dave talks about. Um, but just remember where Dave's coming from. Dave says crazy shit like don't don't worry about not using credit and not having a credit score because you can get that manually underwritten loan with no credit score. Again, a loan with no credit score is way less valuable in the secondary markets. So to believe that someone's going to make that loan to you and just eat that cost because you listen to Dave Ramsey, it just strains credibility. So uh, at the end of the day, a lot of time it sounds like we're, we're just bashing Dave. I like the show. I like him personally, just the way he talks, the way he communicates and helps people. But there's there's a reason behind it all. Let's see here. My friend, Tony. Tony says, Josh, FHA versus conventional loans. Would you recommend an FHA loan to buyers so they can streamline their loan without having to worry about value in the future when rates come down? So here's my thing, Tony. I don't ever recommend a solution to a borrower. What we do is we say, these are the options that fit for you. These are the pros and the cons. You just mentioned one of the big pros to FHA loans, to VA loans, to USDA loans. You can do a streamlined refinance without having to income qualify and without having to get another appraisal on the property. So from that perspective, if that's important to you, if you were nervous about buying into the current market and saying, hey, I think the economy is going to go in the tank. I think values are going to go down and I think rates are going to go down. I'm comfortable buying, but I need that lower rate. That could be your buying decision. That could be the thing that's right. FHA loans for anyone with a sub 720 or 720 or below credit score that's doing three and a half to 5% down, basically anything less than 10%. 
it's going to give you the lowest monthly payment. We have a lower interest rate. We have very competitive mortgage insurance. If you're under a 700 credit score, it's going to be better than the conventional loan. But we have an upfront mortgage insurance premium. It can never go away for the life of the loan. Again, if you're worried that rates are never coming down, that might be a thought that you have. So if you are listening at home and you want the real answer to this, make sure you're working with someone who doesn't have a bias for or against either one and will lay them both out and honestly answer your questions. They're both really good options. The changes over the last few years to lower FHA mortgage insurance on the monthly mortgage insurance and then the changes for Fannie and Freddie to charge higher loan level price adjustments for anyone with a sub 800 credit score is pushing more people to FHA. It's a great program. I love it. Um, but it's not right for everyone. And it's not even right for a loan officer to tell you this is the right answer for you. They need to pencil out the pros and the cons of each one. And then you can make that decision and go, okay, cool. I understand. And that is what I value more. They're both, both really good options. Roll cab. If it's a rental property, should you care what the rate is? I don't know that the answer is a rental property. Every property uh, on my rental, what do I have that for? I want to generate cash flow. So a higher interest rate means less cash flow. So I would absolutely care. Now, if you tell me, hey, here's a $500,000 property, you can buy it for $200,000 at a 10% interest rate. Um, let's, let's kind of use that example. I don't know if I've ever told this story uh, on the show, but I own a fourplex in Long Beach. We bought it in 2010. The seller had a problem. He inherited this property. He lived in one of the units and in the other three units, his stoner buddies. He's like 50 years old at the time. And literally, I mean, unemployed stoner buddies lived there. They were all supposed to pay him $750 a month rent. None of them ever paid because, hey, my stoner buddy owns the place. He's cool. I'll buy him some weed. I'll get him a beer and everything will be good. He needed money to live despite the fact that he had the, the property free and clear. So he wanted to sell it. He was willing to carry back the loan. So seller financing, but he wanted $100,000 more than the property was worth. So when we were talking to him on carrying back that loan, he didn't care about any term other than he wanted $3,000 a month. That was what the building should have generated four units at $750 a pop. If he could get three grand a month, he didn't care about the other terms. He wanted three grand. He wanted $600,000 for the building. We said, cool. So we'll pay you $3,000 a month until we pay you back the $500,000 we're borrowing. So it's a zero interest rate loan at $3,000 a month. So that payment was really low because there's no interest. It's all going towards principal. Next year, no, I always get ahead of myself. It's two years, two Julys from next. That property will be paid off. We'll pay it off in 15 years and it's been cash flow positive the entire time. I don't care that I paid him. I paid him an extra $100,000 because the cost of paying it off and owning it free and clear is much lower. And I generated cash flow the whole way through. So a long way to say, relating back to your question, if you get a big enough discount on a property and it means paying a higher interest rate, cool, who cares? It's a cost of doing business. And at some point in the future, you'll be able to roll that down. So if the cash flow makes sense today, it'll make sense in the future if interest rates go down. But it absolutely is an element in there that you have to take into account as to, to whether that works. Anya, I like this. Do a podcast on manual underwriting. Um, it's a really good idea. And you, you guys, if you're watching, you like the podcast, you listen to the podcast, and you have a topic you want us to cover, some of our best episodes come from you guys. Jeb and I sit here about once a month and brainstorm every idea we can come up with. And sometimes we're too close to it. We don't come up with the great ideas that you guys have. So I will absolutely put that on our list. And we will absolutely hear before the end of the year cover, cover manual underwriting. It's really, really important. Um, 
for those of you who may or may not know, I do have a tiny YouTube channel. The pri primary content that gets posted up there is VA related content. I host a live there every Tuesday. Um, it's for the group Vetted VA, and it's not just me. Two or three other loan officers and realtors from around the country who specialize in helping veterans. And the reason why this triggered me on that, last night we covered underwriting. Manual underwriting was one of the topics, but we did a deep dive into underwriting. Even if you're not uh, a veteran borrower, there's not a whole lot different between underwriting an FHA loan and a VA loan and a conventional loan. A few minor different things, but that hour was four really good, really experienced loan officers doing a deep dive on underwriting what you need to know as a borrower. So check that out. Jay, back with another good comment. Um, you should 100% care about what your rate is as a landlord. It's a myth to believe you can just raise the rent to whatever you want. If the market averages a certain rent, you won't get a tenant. Jay, this, this boggles my mind that we'll get comments here saying it's greedy landlords just setting these rents too high. Landlord doesn't get to set a rent. I would love to rent my units in Long Beach for $4,000 a unit. They get $1,800 because that's what they are worth. If I had a vacancy and I put a $2,100 sign on it, I'm not going to get that because anywhere throughout that neighborhood, you can rent a two-bedroom apartment for $1,700, $1,800. So the market dictates that and... The market also over time will dictate interest rates. So analyze your deal on the way in, know the cash flow, and know the role that the uh, rates. We got a joker in the house. Our friend John Pham says, Hey, where's the other old guy? You need to show up on time, John. We covered that early in the show. Jeb had some family business to tend to tonight uh, and was not able to, to join us. Here's another good one. And uh, I wasn't paying attention here. We're 10 minutes over. Um, I've got a few minutes. I have my in-laws coming into town. My wife was picking them up at the airport. So I do got to get home sooner rather than later. So if you have uh, a question here that we haven't got to, hop in here and uh, and let us know. Um, let me know. Ask, ask the question. And I'll, I'll try and hang out another 10 minutes or so. But A. Aguas says, we covered the angle about inheritance a few times, but are there major capital gains when the original owner who purchased back in the late 60s decides to sell now? Homes in Huntington Beach, 714, thank you. The answer is yes, yes. So um, Jeb had this very situation, a woman who paid, I think it was less than $100,000 for her house. Um, she hasn't found a home yet, so they had to take her home off the market, but it's gonna sell for north of a million dollars. He went through it with her and said, okay, what are the capital improvements that we've done to the property over the years? Well, we put a kitchen in once. Um, there was a new roof a few years back. But when you look at it, there wasn't even $20,000 of improvements. So we say she paid less than $100,000. She had about $20,000 of capitalized improvements. There was $900,000 of potential capital gains there. Now, it will be a long-term capital gain. So it's probably at 15% or, or lower. That amount is never really going to be lower. But that's a lot of money, 15% of $900,000. You're not going to be super happy with that. So that is absolutely a situation. Um, you want to get an expert realtor that has a very good relationship with you and your CPA and go through that in detail and talk about strategies to work your way uh, around. <laughs> so roll cab, lender in the Atlanta area. Best thing you can do here is go to jebsmith.net forward slash referral. I am not uh, approved in Georgia. Our company is not approved in Georgia, so I can't connect you with someone at my company who can help you with that. Uh, but David Zai and his team can absolutely cover you. So jump in there, send, uh, send a message to the referral link, and Jeb will get you connected. 
So this one here, Joyce says, Josh, have you ever seen a buyer change a closing date before when under contract? You cannot unilaterally change a contract. It is literally a contract. If you do not close in time, you are out of contract. You either need to negotiate with the seller to set a new closing date or ask them to cooperate with your new closing date. Um, so the better question is probably, have ever seen a deal fall apart because a buyer failed to close on time? Um, I have seen it. I've never seen it on one of my transactions because generally what happens is it gets delayed and you ask for forgiveness and it gets delayed and you ask for forgiveness. And eventually a seller just gets tired. When we have something unforeseeable that ends up two, three, four days late, even a week late, Jeb and I, I think we talked about the, the deal we had earlier this year here in Long Beach, California. Um, it was a listener of the show, got delayed, I think six weeks, but we kept everyone in the loop up to speed with what was going on. The lender that was giving a $25,000 credit to the buyer um, just kept failing to deliver, but we knew that they would deliver. So hopefully that answers the, the question there. Looking here before we head out to make sure we didn't miss anything. Well, I, is this, this, here's my thing. Is, is this an insult or is this a, is this a, a compliment? Rianu Kiev says, my dude, I hate how you're older, but got superior hair genetics over me. So I will say two things. Um, this is all from my grandpa. My grandpa was overall awesome. Uh, the 1952 Indianapolis 500 winner. So I got a lot of really good genes from him, but this hair is all, all grandpa. Um, but I don't know if you're mocking me for being old or uh, that I got the good hair genes from my grandpa, but I'm going to take it as a compliment. And I appreciate that. Um, got a good one here. Advice on how to get seller to pay closing costs, um, pay them more for their house. The, the seller is generally looking at the net and the highest net that the market will bear. So if there's multiple offers, the only way to really get that credit is to offer them more for the home, assuming that it will appraise and then getting that back in a credit. So your price, less the credit you're asking for, ends up in a greater net than the other offers. Now, if you're in a situation where homes are on the market for 45 days, they don't have any offers. Now you got to look at it and say, it is that net number. I want to pay them X. I need X for my closing costs. I need Y for my closing costs. So X minus Y is, is Z, their net for the property. What's the best net I can give them and get the credit that I need and minimize that price? So that really comes back. Jeb will tell you, get with a realtor that knows the market, has done the research, has showed you all the recent comparable sales, can show you why that house is better or worse, location-wise, condition-wise, school district-wise, and help you adjust there and start that negotiation in terms of, of asking them for it. What I will say, we have a, a viewer here, uh, either the show or, or one of Jeb's videos. He's up in Oregon. We're gonna be writing an offer for him tonight. Um, and he digs in his heels. He's got a number, he wants a 3% seller credit. Um, and he's missed out on a couple of properties that they're like, we'll give you that price, but we'll only do a $5,000 credit. Or uh, we'll give you the credit, but we want $5,000 more. And he's backed out every time. So what we found is in those situations, sellers, even though the homes had been on the market a little bit of time, they did not feel that his net was a reasonable offer. And he's wanting to write one tonight and talk directly to the listing agent, sort of relating back to an earlier question that uh, went directly to the listing agent. And she reached out to me and we went through it. And she's like, my sellers just cut the price 5%. They feel that they're at the right price right now. They're not ready to give that big credit. So you wanna do that, uh, due diligence. You wanna to talk to your realtor, have the realtor talk to the listing agent as much as possible, find out where that seller is coming from, what their hot buttons are and give them everything you can to get what you need and want out of that transaction.
So that's it, guys. We're we are here at six fifteen. No additional questions. Um, I am a little disappointed. Last time we filled in solo with no Jeb, we were about one hundred and seventy-five viewers. Most of the show we peaked at like one thirty. So Jeb's going to give me shit and say that I'm not uh, good at hosting by myself. You may not get me back by myself. He may just go dark next time he's not available because I didn't have enough of a, an audience here tonight. But for those of you that uh, that did show up here, uh, I appreciate it. Appreciate you guys keeping me on track, uh, running the ticker here, asking for likes and subscribes and all that. Um, if you haven't subscribed to Jeb's channel, subscribe to the channel, like this show, go out, do the same for the educated home buyer. And if you're interested in what little content I publish, go check out Josh Lewis CMC on YouTube as well. So again, thank you all for being here. And hopefully the both of us will be back to talk to you next week. Have a good one, guys. Thanks for listening to The Educated Home Buyer. Want to connect with us or to a local expert in your area? Please reach out at theeducatedhomebuyer.com slash expert. If you found any value today, please be sure to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. In addition, we ask that you share it with your friends and subscribe to us on YouTube. And make sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening.